This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly hour of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and sitting beside me today I have the lovely Lolly Doc and the magnificent Dr Malice. And as well as those two, we have got two extra special guests joining us on the show this morning. And together they kind of bring us a very clear theme of young people and mental health. So let me tell you about them. Our first guest this morning is Dr. Sarah Edelman. She's a clinical psychologist and she's the author of a very famous book called Change Your Thinking that you might have seen on any good psychologist's shelf. That book's been around for years, but she's just published a new book called Good Thinking, A Teenager's Guide to Managing Stress and Emotions Using CBT. So she's going to be joining us to tell us all about this new book and all about mental health in teenagers and how cognitive behavioural therapy can help. As well as Dr. Sarah Edelman, we've got a second special guest, as I mentioned, and that special guest is Silvana Lettieri. And Silvana is the manager of the Headspace in Hawthorne, which is an early intervention service for young people. You might have heard of the Headspaces that are all through metropolitan Melbourne, but you probably don't know just exactly what they do and uh, how many groups of people they help. So they're focused on young people and mental health, but of course they have lots of resources for health professionals, for schools and a whole range of other populations. So we're going to hear all about what Headspace is today and how Headspace can help you. So why don't I stop talking and therefore we can have lots of time for the proper experts about mental health in young people. So let's get going with the show. Good morning, good morning. Thanks to Radio Marinara for bringing us the fascinating hour beforehand. And good morning, Dr. Malice and Lolly Doc. How are you, Dr. Malice? I'm a bit subdued and <laughs> running out of conversation without the intro for football. And those who know me and my team, I won't even mention their name at the moment because it's too too humiliating in a sort of way. We had good 10 years and, you know, the wheel of fortune goes up and down and we're sort of at the down part. So, so obviously I don't understand anything that you just said. It's all gone it's in right over it's the top of my head. But yes, it's in code. Does this mean that's going to be the end of our footy talk? Until uh, the Wheel of Fortune turns around and then we come up to the top again, as right. it does happen. Okay. We'll Good to know. This is called patience. <laughs> Not one of my virtues. <laughs> Lolly Doc, good morning. Good morning and uh, very happy birthday to all the queens in our radio <laughs> audience that are listening and uh, all those listeners in the uh, LGBTI community. It is your weekend. It. Isn't it? Isn't that, yes. what we do? Isn't that what the Queen's birthday weekend's about? Absolutely. I thought so. Yeah. Yeah. So what? happy birthday. <laughs> what about the royalists? Uh, don't they have something to do with it? Who? I thought there was a lady in uh, Buckingham Palace in London. Um, uh, I, I'm, actually, right? I'm, I'm actually a Republican, but I... Well, actually, a Republican sounds like I'm a 
Trump supporter, doesn't it? It does actually. You better uh, be careful. No, with I know. That. I actually really like the Queen. I think she's a she's a good sort. The Queen. And <laughs> Have you been ever, watching Crown? I think Crown's an amazing series. It's I really love good. it. Yeah, it's um, incredible. Yeah, it's really well done. Yeah. Anyway, back to medicine and psychology. Heard we have it. got <laughs> we have got some some big topics for today. Obviously, in terms of young people and mental health. And before we get into the serious stuff. We always like to start a bit lighthearted, don't we? We do. <laughs> Lolly Dog, you wanted to talk about the very medical and psychological topic of high heels. Well, so <laughs> so I quite like superheroes and um, I was very excited about the release of Wonder Woman, the movie, and particularly excited because it's a very female driven project so it's got a female director a female producer and obviously a female lead and i was very very excited about this and then was completely disappointed by the misogynist reaction uh, on the red carpet to it so a lot of comments were made about gal gadot who's in the israeli lead who is an incredibly beautiful smart woman whose only comments on on social media were about her flat shoes so she wore flat shoes on the red carpet and not heels and so a lot of people made comments about that so i thought i would fight back and talk to you about the um the health uh, harm that can come from wearing high heels and so there's a significant proportion of women who wear high heels and men i guess but they don't really publish about the men uh but there's a there's a significant proportion of women who have back pain due to high heel wearing and that's because so there's two main problems with high heels the first is back pain and the second is what we call plantar fasciitis. So your plantar fascia... Oh, good old plantar fasciitis. Good old plantar fasciitis. If you've ever, ever had it, it's incredibly painful. Lasts for weeks and weeks and weeks. So the plantar fascia is the connective tissue that sits on the sole of your foot and provides like a bridge and a protective layer for all the tendons and muscles underneath. You can imagine that uh, most of the weight goes through the feet and so having a strong, tough, uh, fibrous element to, to that foot is important. And what can happen with the position of the foot in the high heel is that you can get significant stretch on that plantar fascia and that can cause pain and inflammation, which can be difficult to to manage. Also, your centre of weight and centre of gravity moves forward as you're wearing high heels. And so you use all these lower back muscles and buttock muscles to try and counteract that and end up with back pain. So screw you, high heels. Plus they're impossible to walk in. (laughs) Which is why I've always hated them. No, exactly. They're really for... Yes, don't wear them. Great segment. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Thanks. Great. Now, just a question practically. If uh, <laughs> there's someone who's rather um, short and would like to, for aesthetic reasons, make themselves look tall, would you recommend platforms then maybe? So platforms were fantastic in the 70s and they really should make a comeback, I think. If you can, if you can rock a pair of platforms with like an electric guitar... Yeah. Now, that's a woman I'd like to have a conversation with. <laughs> <laughs> We've put okay. the call out officially. Call the studio. <laughs> Dr. Malice, I need you to regroup for a second. 
how do we follow up after that? <laughs> Is there a transition, a segue or I've something? I've got no segue and actually yeah. it's it's a big jump that we're about to make yes. because we're about to head into the theme of young people and mental health and you wanted to talk about a set of guidelines that have recently come out about complex trauma in young people. And I had a quick glance at these and at the beginning of these guidelines, there's a little story, I guess, about how they came about. I'm about to ask you to share it, but I probably should check first. Have you read that? No. (laughs) No, I have read it, but I don't think that that's a useful way to introduce this morning for the simple reason this is an American set of guidelines from the civilian point of view. That is, youngsters who have got difficulties with past histories of stress and trauma. Mm. And then in adolescence, basically it focuses on the 9 to adolescent phase. And that, to my mind, misses the point Mm. because so much already happens before the age of adolescence. And so, really, I think this story starts off with a 12-year-old and it gives the wrong impression that stress only registers at 12, whereas, in fact, by 12, it's much more the adolescent-languaged experience of stress. And I'm much more concerned that in our culture today, and especially why I brought this to a head to really Headspace was going to be our program there was going to be a, a renowned author with a new book uh, on adolescent mental health. And two weeks ago, we had this extraordinary experience in Manchester where, for the first time, uh, we have to talk about terrorism uh, because young people are growing up in a different world to certainly in my world mm. uh, from 30, 40 years ago. And therefore, as mental health professionals, we need to be really in touch with what's happening in the world of young people not only what's happening in the world of young people but what's happening in the world of young people when they become parents and then transmit the stress and trauma to their children that was never more apparent to me leading up to the trump election when um myself and um the, my kids were having conversations about uh, the election and I quite, I think, quite offhandedly suggested that it was a, a big deal if Trump got into the White House mm. and that would create huge problems for the for the world. And without even realising that I'd said that, the kids, when Trump got in, were very, very upset by that and I had to explain to them, you know, re, reframe what that all meant. And I, I, I didn't realise how much they thought about the world and what it could mean. And it's quite black and white thinking at ages nine and seven, I guess. Now, this highlights really the point, not only with the changing world in terms of politics, but when something like a concert for young people targets young people... As adults, as parents, teachers, therapists, we're at a loss how to translate that to the so-called innocence of youth. Now, the innocence of youth is a reality, as uh, Lollipop just mentioned, because they see the world in black and white, good and bad. So a rock concert up till that stage for families, youngsters, was a coming-of-age event. It was glorious. It was where, perhaps for the first time, a group of young friends went out uh, with parents' permission to have wholesome fun and then come home and say, we've done it, we've gone to a pop concert. Now, what happens when parents themselves are at such a loss to know how to relate to this event? 
how are they going to be talking to their children who not only are the teenagers, but they will have younger siblings? Those teenagers will be going to school, even if they're in secondary school, they'll be primary school uh, students aged 5 to 12. So this is the reason I'd rather, it's a long-winded way of saying, why I'd rather not introduce a 12-year-old because that's missing the point a bit. Hmm. And so the power of this guide is that it is actually targeted for two groups. One is the youth, but I'd like to emphasise more importantly, it's for those who care about them. So this is a tremendous resource for parents, teachers and indeed our mental health profession how to think about trauma. It is no longer adequate to just talk about trauma and the title of this, in fact, is called Complex Trauma. Now, how many mental health professionals even know the difference between plain trauma and complex? And this is what is so timely about this publication that it is a, a paper of its time. Simple trauma is no longer an adequate model for most of us who are going to be seeing families who've either got intergenerationally transmitted trauma, which often is complex, or trauma compounded by PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which tragically not only in Manchester, but London, and last week in Brighton, Melbourne. Mm. Now, this is really in the suburbs, in our midst. I'm not drumming this up. I'm not trying to make it dramatic or somehow talk it up. But the alternative is denial and disconnection from it. And so I'm making a heartfelt plea. Let's address the reality we live in. There are many lone wolf schools that are generating many so-called lone wolves. Those schools are responsible for generating people who actually create these havoc, mayhem, catastrophes for young people. These guidelines sound amazing. How can people uh, find them if they want to know more? Now, this is only one guideline, and I'll read out the actual title of the NCTSN, the National Child Traumatic Stress Network, NCTSN. And if you Google them, this is not the only publication. There are many other specifically targeted guidelines for teachers, for CBT uh, practitioners, and we'll hear about Mm. CBT later on. And I think it is just such a worthwhile publication for us as grown-ups to come to terms with what young people are living through. Thanks, Dr Malice. We are going to go to a quick track now and we're going to come back with our first special guest, Dr Sarah Edelman, to talk about her new book, Good Thinking, which is a teenager's guide to managing stress and emotions using CBT. So don't go away. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We're having a show all about young people and mental health this morning and we are about to go to our first special guest, Dr Sarah Edelman. Let me tell you a little bit about Dr Sarah Edelman. She is a clinical psychologist and she's also an author and trainer. She's published many articles in professional and mainstream journals and she's the author of the best-selling book on CBT called Change Your Thinking. So when I saw this new book come across my desk called Good Thinking, A Teenager's Guide to Managing Stress and Emotions Using CBT, I knew that I knew the name Sarah Edelman and it's because of her previous book, uh, Change Your Thinking, which 
as I said before, I, I, I assume pretty much all psychologists have that book on their shelf and, and many members of the general public. So we're doing a phone interview with Dr. Sarah Edelman from Sydney. Let's see if we've got her on the phone. Sarah, are you there? Yes, I am. And thanks for that introduction. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a big win when the person on the phone is there immediately. I feel immediate relief. (laughs) Now, Sarah, as I said before, I I recognised your name immediately because of your previous book, Change Your Thinking, which Mm -hmm. has been around for many years. But we've got you on the show today to talk about Mm -hmm. your latest book, which is all about mental health in young people and the use of Mm -hmm. cognitive behavioural therapy. Mm-hmm. Can I start by asking you, as a clinical psychologist, what sparked your interest in writing books? You know, what, what made you sort of want to spend time at the computer instead of face-to-face with people in the clinical room? Where did that come yeah. from? Well, originally, um, the, the first book, Change of Thinking, I wrote in 2002. And at that time, there was very, very little for the consumer on cognitive behaviour therapy, which is uh, what, what um, I guess, the, the, the focus of... Um, uh, this advice or the advice that we're giving both to adults and teenagers is all about. And I was teaching a program at the time at Sydney Uni called Change Your Thinking, which was Changing Your Thinking, which was at the time for adults. And um, uh, people were sort of constantly wanting references and reading material, and there was very little around. There was one or two uh, American references that weren't great, and so I started sort of putting together a, a lot of the notes and resources that I developed. And after a while, it sort of all came together, and I, I put it into um, into the first book, into Change Your Thinking, which was originally published in 2002, and subsequently um, revised a couple of times since then. Um, recently, um, one of the bits of feedback that we've frequently had was that, gee, I wish I'd learnt all this when I was younger. You know, it might have saved me, you know, 30 or 40 years of angst. So that's actually a frequent comment that we get from people who use cognitive behaviour therapy as a, as a guide for, for, for stress. And so because I had actually run groups for, for teenagers many years ago um, with a colleague, I actually approached this colleague of mine and said, you know, do you think we can put together something for teenagers as well? And um, this is how the, the, the new book was, was born. Fascinating. And that colleague, I assume, is Louise Raymond, that's, who's the co-author of Good Thinking. Raymond, yes. Yeah. Yes. Who, who works, still works at the University of Technology, Sydney, and works predominantly with, um, uh, with young people. And she was also um, used to write for Dolly magazine, had a, had a role in Dolly Doctor. So she's <gasps> Dolly Doctor? Yeah. yeah. Oh. She wasn't the Dolly Doctor. She, was, she actually used to do a particular column. I can't... Uh, sorry, it, it, it escapes me the name of it but within the Dolly Doctor section and um, yes had lots lots of experience in 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 that area you've just filled me with nostalgia <laughs> yes, yes sadly Dolly's not around anymore but um, but it, it, it's certainly something that, that, that many people will remember yeah uh, we're going to go to a question from Lolly Doc Sarah Sarah okay. thank you um in t- teenage years are obviously a tumultuous emotional time mm-hmm. and and in your book you talk about faulty thinking and how that can lead to upsetting emotions like anxiety and frustration and depression mm-hmm. how do you tell the difference between normal teenage growth and normal teenage exploration and thinking that's um, a little bit that, that needs um, CBT 
Well, look, I, I guess when we talk about faulty thinking amongst teenagers, it's not limited teenagers, all of us, adults, uh, children, uh, teenagers, at times um, think in ways that are unhelpful or think in ways that are perhaps unreasonable, unbalanced um, and contribute unnecessarily to upsetting emotions. Um, it's Look, it's very hard to draw the line and say, look, this is faulty thinking, this is, this is kind of normal thinking. But I guess it is reasonable when people, uh, for example, when they're going through stress of, um, of exams or, you know, a lot of pressure at school, it's normal and reasonable to be anxious in that situation. But if on top of that some of their thinking is about, um, oh, this is, this is disastrous, or if they don't do as well as they'd hoped to do, they immediately think about, oh, I've completely blown my future, you know, this is a disaster, etc. We would call that black and white thinking or catastrophic thinking because it's that inability to, to see nuance, to, you know, to, rather than to say, uh, for example, you know, I'm disappointed, what can I do to try and do better next time? Um, it's, it's immediately seeing things in catastrophic terms. So faulty thinking, um, it, within the book we list a whole um, a, a number of different examples of faulty thinking and even different categories of faulty thinking that create um, upsetting emotions or excessive upsetting emotions that they could otherwise avoid if they, if they learn to think in a more balanced way. Sarah, the description that you've just given, I think, is such a lovely description of what cognitive behavioural therapy is. And I think, you know, CBT has found its way into the general public. You know, lots of people have heard about it, but mm -hmm. I think it's rare these days for us to to hear a sort of, you know, nitty-gritty description of what it actually means. And mm -hmm. as you were just saying, the reaction with so many adults is, you know, I wish I'd known this stuff earlier. Uh, how would you describe what CBT is? And I'm wondering, I'm going to put you on the spot, but <laughs> uh, I'm wondering if you've got an example that you could use to help us get a sense of, of what it is. Um, okay, so first of all, uh, CBT stands for Cognitive Behaviour Therapy. It was originally used primarily for clinical psychology to help people manage mental health um, issues and, and upsetting emotions. It's now got much wider um, accessibility and it's used very widely within the community for um, stress management programs. It's a skills-based approach to managing stress and upsetting emotions and it involves learning some, some basic skills and those skills include uh, learning to identify unhelpful thinking, just recognising that you know whenever you're upset about something, whether you're angry, frustrated, anxious, um, despairing, embarrassed, whatever it is, that there are thoughts going on inside your mind and it's usually the thoughts themselves that are creating those emotions. So learning to identify the thoughts and to challenge them in a sort of reasonable and balanced way. So to come back with more reasonable thoughts can in itself help you to manage your emotions. So the first component of CBT is actually uh, working directly with your thoughts, monitoring your thoughts, identifying thoughts that are unhelpful and challenging your thoughts. The second component is the behavioural side of CBT and that's engaging in certain behaviours that help you to, to manage emotions more effectively. And that may include things like uh, setting goals, uh, problem solving, um, using effective communication, sort of learning to be a little bit more assertive in order to, to solve problems, 
confronting your fears rather than avoiding fears, practicing deep relaxation exercises, um, mindfulness skills, etc. So there are a number of specific skills that, that we teach um, through cognitive behaviour therapy. Um, just an example might be um, a, a, a teenager who who, go, who went to a party and there were times at that party where she sort of felt very self-conscious um, and part of it was that she'd had her hair cut and she's really embarrassed about how how she's looking and also there was there were times when she sort of wasn't talking to anyone she was sort of looking around the room and at the end of that night I mean she sort of left a, a bit early and she it just feels like such a disaster and she said I made a total fool of myself you know people were looking at me people must think that you know there's something wrong with me that I'm a loser and you know my, obviously thinking you know I look stupid with this hair and um, you know they would have seen that I was sort of feeling anxious and a lot of that is is just what we call mind reading and mind reading is making assumptions about what other people are thinking and once she sort of stopped and, and, and we talked about well you know what is the evidence for that is there any evidence that people were judging you is there any evidence that uh, you know w w um, and when you, you w were you standing by yourself all night or were there time hey, no, how much of the time were you actually talking to people and she said no probably 60 or 70 percent of the time she was talking to people and um, so just recognising that um, thinking can be totally catastrophic and disproportionate and, 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 and not necessarily accurate and to also focus on some of the positive things that have happened and also in that case to actually think about well next time I'm in that situation what sort of things can I do in order to feel more comfortable and she recognised that she could even sort of take around some of the you know some of the drinks and offer people with savouries or there were things that she could you know there were there were things that she could start talking about so planning ahead thinking about how to problem solve some of those situations would also be really helpful so rather than thinking you know i went to this party and it was awful and that's why i'm feeling so crap you know mm -hmm. when i've got yeah. home at the end of the night yeah. there's this crucial intermediate step which is well no part of the reason i'm feeling the way i'm feeling is because of the way i'm thinking about the party exactly and if exactly. i can change that yeah. it's not just yeah. the event of the party yeah. that's causing me to feel this way yeah. it's the way and i'm thinking about able it to mind uh, sorry to to label the faulty thinking so if she you know when she was able to say hang on i'm mind reading here and mind reading is just a term we use for assuming we know what's going on in other people's minds and very often, if you're feeling bad about yourself, you tend to project it onto other people. You assume that other people, that this is coming from someone else. So um, to actually say, uh, well, you know, I don't know what other people were thinking. You know, the, the few people I spoke to were friendly. So this is my stuff. So using that label, I'm mind reading and, and perhaps catastrophizing, um, just puts a little bit of distance between yourself and your thoughts mm. and also just gives you a bit of objectivity. Mm. We've got a question from Dr. Malice. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you very much, Sarah. It's always a delight to have an author who's backing up her book with such experience and articulating oh, the, the, the experiences so well. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. 
What a pleasure. What I'd like to ask is in your book to go to uh, another level of your book because you clearly lay out the map of adolescence that has been, as mentioned, tumultuous and there's ups and downs and there's surges of hormones and emotional changes and social changes and first relationships and all of that. Mm -hmm. Now, you also highlight the brain changes and something about strengthening some networks and pruning others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, would you be able to speak to that issue of what is this strengthening networks about? It certainly isn't about the networks socially. It's in the networks in the brain, I'm assuming, and also yeah, what's pruning in the brain. Neuronal, neuronal networks. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we know now, um, even from, from some of the stuff that's been, you know, uh, I guess, in the popular media about brain plasticity, that the brain is plastic. In other words, if you use the brain in a certain way repeatedly, there are neuronal changes within the brain that will strengthen those particular skills. Um, so someone, you know, as an example, someone who um, plays a musical instrument and does a lot of practice will become very proficient in that, partly because of the uh, strengthening of neuronal networks. Now, that tendency towards being strengthened is particularly... Um, uh, what's the word, important and, and salient during those adolescent years. And it is a time of like significant changes within the brain. Uh, scientists have sometimes referred to it as, as the brain being under construction during that adolescent phase. And those um, skills and those things that are repeatedly used tend to be strengthened, while those that are not used that frequently tend to be weakened and disappear. <clears throat> The, the, the term that's often used is pruning. Things are pruned. So when, uh, so if, for example, teenagers um, ignore, um, for, for example, even socialising and spend most of the time on their phone or, or on their, you know, on their computers or, or, or using or in the digital world, they certainly strengthen their skills in that digital capacity that they're focusing on. But they can also weaken. The, the, their skills and their natural connections with other people if it's something that they that they ignore it's not necessarily just in the area of social skills it may be in any any area that is neglected for a time for, for, for that period during teenage years and for that reason we really highlight the importance of a balanced lifestyle and making sure that you do have you know take the time to um, you know to focus on things that are important not just in the short term but also in the long term. You're listening to Radiotherapy on 3RRR and it's about 25 minutes to 11 o'clock. We're speaking to Dr Sarah Edelman, author of the new book Good Thinking, which is a guide for teenagers about managing stress and emotions using CBT. Sarah, we were just talking about the amazing opportunity that adolescence is regarding strengthening neural pathways and what happens during adolescence, which is that our brains prune the pathways Mm -hmm. that are not being Mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. Is that the main reason that you decided to write a book for teenagers because that time of life is, I guess, such an opportunity for brain development or are there there other reasons? I I, I guess my focus was because, I mean, just even in my own life, I I look back to my adolescence and I was... I remember just feeling um, in competition a lot of the time, you know, trying to trying to find my place in social networks, but also being anxious a lot of the time, being really unhappy at home, um, and also just not understanding what was going on. There was just so much angst um, in that period of time, and I think 
if I had somebody to explain what was going on or to just give me some of this guidance, life could have been so much easier. Mm. Um, so I do think it is a vulnerable time. And look, not all teenagers find it a terrible time. Some teenagers who are blessed with, you know, like, I guess, um, really positive, um, natural temperament and, and disposition and having really good supportive families and, and um, you know, having skills and, and developing confidence early, will go through this phase with, with, without a, a huge amount of stress or angst and, and, and then will deal with it generally pretty well. And we salute but those it, two teenagers in Australia. <laughs> we salute, salute those two teenagers. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I guess my point is some have greater angst than others and some find this period a particularly stressful period. Um, and I think, you know, having that understanding, just understanding what's going on um, for you, understanding what are emotions and also normalising it, understanding that it's not you that's just feeling this way. It's so many other, uh, other kids are feeling the same way. So this is sort of a normal part of what you're going through. And, uh, and having some skills, having some ways or methods of dealing with this difficult stage um, could you know can make this whole period so much easier to deal with and also can can help in the longer term you know we know that um, that a lot of mental health problems that people experience in their adult lives are established early in their lives and part of that you know, certainly um, dynamics within the family play a really important role but even peer group relationships can, uh, affect um, disposition to mental health problems later in life so for example you know the bullying um, during teenage years um, can have a long-term effect on self-esteem, it can increase risk of depression, it can, it can have an effect on all sorts of aspects of mental health further down the track. So just even understanding in situations, for example, where you feel that you don't fit in, which I think is extremely common amongst teenagers but also very common even amongst adults, understanding that just because you're not connecting to other people doesn't actually mean that there's something defective about you or there's something wrong with you, understanding that that's a common and, and quite normal feeling to have at times and to recognise that it's okay to be different and mm. that, that we do have our own, you know, um, aspects of our personality that may be different to other people and there'll, there'll be sometimes situations where we're, you know, surrounded by people, whether it's in a classroom or in a, you know, in a social group where you, you, you don't feel connected. Understanding that that still is okay and there will be other people in your life who you do connect to or that it still doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you, I think is such an important mm. thing to, to get um, uh, during those, you know, very vulnerable years and, and often... You know, most, most teenagers would not be aware of that. There's some really nice, positive, hopeful messages in your book, Sarah, and it'd be nice to kind of summarise those um, to wrap up. Just to, to hear you articulate those um, would be fantastic. So how, 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 how can teenagers approach, um, approach this? Yeah, I, I guess just a few, a couple of things. One is that self-doubt is absolutely normal and um, it's a normal part of teenage years and even adult years and, and that's, that's okay. Um, to actually recognise that upsetting emotions pass and so the problem when we are in a distressed state, whether it's anxiety or depression or feelings of hopelessness, it always feels permanent. It's hard to believe that upsetting emotions pass, but they do pass. And, uh, and also recognise that when you are in experiencing upsetting emotions, they're distorting your thoughts. So 
when you are anxious, your thoughts will be more catastrophic. When you are sad or depressed, your thoughts are more pessimistic and hopeless. So just because you are thinking things doesn't mean it's true. Um, so recognising that, I think, is important. And finally, look after your body. So recognise that healthy body, healthy mind, um, things like physical exercise, um, uh, healthy diet, um, having healthy sleep routines, um, and, and just generally sort of looking after the physical side also is really helpful for, for the body. And there's things that, that, that most teenagers can exercise at least some, some degree of control. And finally, just one other thing is things do get better. So even when we feel that everything's hopeless and, and our lives are sort of, you know, out of control, um, I, they, they tend to get better either because the situation itself will change or even when situations don't change in every way, the way that we think about them tends to change. We adapt over time and invariably uh, problems pass. Sarah, what a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for your time this morning. A reminder to everyone, the book is called Good Thinking, A Teenager's Guide to Managing Stress and Emotions Using CBT. It's a great read. Pick it up if you're a parent of a young person, if you're a young person, or even if you just think of yourself as a young person like we do here at Triple R. Thank you, Sarah. My pleasure, and thanks to everybody on the panel too. Our great pleasure. We have been talking all about young people and mental health today. We've just had a lovely interview with Dr. Sarah Edelman about her new book, Good Thinking. And we've got another special guest now, Silvana Lettieri, who's the manager of Headspace in Hawthorne, coming in to talk to us. So, Silvana, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Lolly Doc, you know Silvana pretty well. In fact, I think you actually call her one of your close mates. I, I, I do. <laughs> I, Does I she do. call you well, one of her close mates? Just before in the studio, she said, are we? Yeah. <laughs> I was kidding. So, I'm sorry. We are <laughs> close mates. The pain. So, Lolly, do you want to introduce Silvana for us? Yeah, for sure. So, uh, I've known Silvana a little while now, and uh, I know that over the last 17 years she's worked in various government and community organisations, particularly with um, young, vulnerable people and their families. And in the last 10 years, her focus has been on improving the health and wellbeing outcomes for children and young people, and in particular, developing responsive, flexible and accessible services for young people and families. And in that capacity, we've got her into the studio as the manager of Headspace, Hawthorne, on to talk a little bit about what Headspace is, what they do and what services they offer. And I thought it'd be a good opportunity for Silvana to let us know a little bit about Headspace. Cool. Yeah, I think that's actually a lovely place to start, Silvana, because I think uh, much like CBT, you know, lots of people have heard of Headspace, mm. but I'm not sure that everyone actually understands what the service is yeah. and, and what it provides. So do you want to start there? Sure. So um, Headspace my headspace and all headspaces across australia offer services mental health early intervention services for young people between the ages of 12 to 25 mm -hmm. um so they're in the early stages of experiencing mental health symptoms so what does that mean does it mean people can just walk in off the street if they think that they might be suffering from a mental health condition or is it a place for health professionals to contact what, what's the practical practicality it, of it it's both so for young people they can um, access the service by contacting the service by phone or by walk-ins um, and they'll always receive a service so they'll have a um, an intake with a, a social worker um, and then um, be referred on to a mental health clinician clinician under the mental health care plan so they're places that any young person can just walk into and, and talk to someone about what's going on for them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. 
The other thing I'm aware of with Headspace is that there's online avenues for people, isn't there? Because, you know, as we talk about young people being able to walk in through the door, not everyone has a Headspace round the corner. Mm. Can you tell us a bit about the online stuff? So there's eHeadspace also um, and young people can either um, email or be part of a group chat and that's always moderated by a clinician um, or they can actually contact um, if they're in crisis. Amazing, amazing resources mm, for absolutely. young people. Yeah. One of the interesting things I found about Headspace was that it wasn't just about mental health um, services. So there was also uh, services about physical health, mm. work and study support, which is so important in that age group, um, and alcohol and drug services as well. And I'm fascinated that each Headspace is a little bit different and caters to the population of the area that they're yep. located in. Absolutely. So um, all Headspaces have the same mandate and we do focus on uh, physical, mental, um, school and um, work and as well as drug and alcohol. But um, they're, they're run differently. So um, some Headspaces have clinicians on site, some people, some Headspaces um, refer out, um, but we always offer a intake service. So it really depends on um, how that service is operated. My service at the moment, um, we have an intake, a thorough intake service um, where a young person can contact Headspace um, and they'll get us a, a, an intake um, appointment the following day. And they normally last for about an hour, an hour and a half. So we go through a lot of information and collect a lot of information about that young person. But we also offer them some strategies on how to deal with their situation at that point in time before they actually get to see a mental health clinician. Mm. And it's important to say that not all young people need a mental health care plan, and that's given through the GP. Um, Some young people just need a generalist counsellor, so that's one of of my social workers will provide them with with free counselling. It's a really important point, isn't Mm. it? Because I think sometimes, you know, the way that the mental health system works can be a real barrier for adults, let alone young people who aren't used to navigating that on their own. And, you know questions about do I need a referral and do yeah. I have to have seen a doctor uh, could I imagine could be real barriers to them accessing care so yep. did I understand you correctly when then that people don't necessarily need a referral they can just literally walk in off the street absolutely they can walk in off the street they can talk to someone about what their issue is and then it's decided whether they need a mental health care plan whether they meet the criteria of a mental health care plan and then we can always link them in with the gp um who will provide them with that mental health care plan ideally um with some headspaces you would have a gp on site um who can provide them with that mental health care plan they can actually see someone virtually within the first one week or two weeks Mm. so we try to keep our um our wait list low um because young people when they want a service they want it immediately and it's that small window of opportunity that they have and they want to actually access that service so that's why we need flexible responsive services for young people it does sound to me like headspace has been designed with that concept of the young person in mind, you know, specifically and and what's actually going to work for the way that they think, the way that they act and things like, you know, wanting a service here and now. What's your experience of how that works for young people? You know, what kind of feedback do you get from them? Um, we get some really good feedback. Uh, we It's mostly positive in respect to the wait times, in respect to the clinicians, um, in respect to the service that they they receive, basically. Uh, we also work with families. Um, we see that 
not only working with the young people but also working with their families also um, to provide them with also some support and that is really positive. Mm. I think it's amazing that so Headspace I think as of last year had uh, had contact with 255,000 young people in Australia yeah. and it offered 1.5 million services. Yeah. So that's, that's an extraordinary... That's I think that's a success just based on, you know, that age group accessing services. I mean, I can't, you know, in the emergency department, for example, a young person would never come to us for those sorts of problems. So the, the fact that they're accessing Headspace, I think, is a real success. Do you refer to Headspace a lot, Lolly, in the emergency department? Yeah, I, I do. Um, so I use their services. Uh, in fact, interestingly, I've got a personal story as well, which I'll tell you in two seconds, but I, I do refer to them um, both via phone. So they've got a phone service as well. Yep. And I do point them to the, the web website, which I think is an excellent website, in fact, for young people. So it's well designed and young people are very keen on getting information via the internet. Mm. So that's, I think, a, a really well designed web space. My, my personal story is um, three years ago or two, two years ago, um, the principal of my kid's primary school committed suicide. And um, that was an enormous um, event for the school itself and notwithstanding the personal effects on his family, um, the effects on the school, uh, school-wide, was, was extraordinary. And Headspace actually offers mm. school support and, um, and family support, uh, not just for personal support but also on a wider sort of, uh, I guess, organisational support. Mm. And, and we found that very useful. They, help, they helped our school. It was terrific. Silvana, can you tell us a bit more about that? What what are the school supports that are on offer? Um, Headspace National um, offers uh, support to schools who um, post-vention of a suicide. So um, they uh, offer... Uh, support to teachers, they offer support to families um, and go in after a, a school or a community has um, experienced a, a young person or an adult exper- um, suiciding. Dr Malice. Yeah. This is just absolutely fascinating. Um, what I've got a question about, clearly with an organisation you have a, a, an authority from the adults. Mm. What if a 13-year-old doesn't decide to phone in, doesn't use the website, but decides I'm going to walk in? Mm. What happens in terms of privacy and confidentiality and permission yeah. of an underage in terms of legal uh, status? So with a young person that just walks in, we will always encourage them to um, for us to get um, consent from their parents to speak to them. Um, if there's risk issues, um, we will always defer back to the parent um, and talk to them about keeping them safe. It's about making sure that they're safe and that they're well looked after and their parents need to know what's going on for them. Um, a lot of young people say, I don't want my parents mm-hmm. to know. Yes. Um, I don't want my parents feeling like it's their fault. And so we will always explore that um, that notion with them. What is it about that? What's going on for you, and what's going on within your family that um, is really harmful for you? Nine times out of ten, they will always defer, give us permission to speak to their parents. Um, and then sometimes we just have to break confidentiality. We will always ask for a emergency contact um, when speaking to a young person. Silvana, managing headspace, you know, when Lolly Doc just talked about, you know, the number of young Mm -hmm. people who are seen across headspace services, 
Yeah, I feel a bit overwhelmed at the thought mm. of how on earth you would manage one of these centres. And I can also imagine that it would wear you down on some level as a mental health professional, you know, in terms of the, the stories and the yeah. difficult times that you're hearing about. How do you manage that? And, uh, you know, what what keeps you wanting to be in that role year after year? I'm lucky. I've only been in this role for two months, so I'm <laughs> relatively fresh and lucky. But mm. um, being in this industry for 17 years, I suppose there have been times where I've, uh, like everyone else, you, you overwork yourself and you get so Im- immersed in the stories that you hear and they get through to the gatekeeper and there are times where you've just had to walk away. Um, I suppose through the experiences over the last 17 years, it's more about um, my mental health and how I look after myself and how I look after my team. So I don't have direct contact with young people. I will in a couple of weeks' time when I'm running a group with one of my clinicians, um, which will be fun. But for me, it's more about looking after myself. Um, And I never used to do that properly. Um, It was always, I'm superwoman and I can do everything. Well, I can't. So, um, and understanding that I am human and my self-care is really important, as well as the self-care of my team. So that's what I'm passionate about, looking after my team's mental health, looking after their resilience and building that up. So we have supervision weekly. Um, and they also have discipline-specific supervision once a month. And self-care is um, always on the agenda. Um, and I am a, like a dog with a bone with it. <laughs> I make sure that they're okay. And we do things as a team also. So we'll have the double-coated cho- uh, double chocolate Tim Tams on a Friday afternoon. Works and for me and yeah, self-care. Absolutely. And I've taught them how to suck it through the um, coffee, <laughs> which is yum. Um, so we do stuff like that. We have the team lunches. Um, and Paintballing. I want to do that. Yeah, um, paintballing's fun, <laughs> um, but we, we do we do do things that way. Um, and I suppose for me, if I see the signs of um, the burnout, if I start seeing that, I will always start addressing that. And you know, I'll normally get that. No, 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 I'm fine. No, you're not fine. So let's start having that conversation. Just very briefly, uh, Helen Milroy, who's one of the commissioners for the Royal Commission mm. into Institutional Responses for Child Sexual Abuse, said that burnout and vicarious yeah. trauma in listening to youngsters is one of the hidden costs yeah. of being on staff. Now, is your enlightened view to vicarious trauma management and yeah. self-care your personal management issue or is this a national policy for all headspace? Uh, both both. Um, we make sure that um, our clinicians are well looked after but for me and there's also my personal view because I've gone through it so many times and um, there are times you've had you've had to deal with it yourself and there are other times where you've had really good managers who are able to pick up, pick up when you're starting to decline. So could a professional phone headspace and say I'm in sort of a burnout state? Absolutely, you can have um, secondary consultation with one of the clinicians definitely. Up to the age of 25, Melis, is that you? <laughs> Just missed out. <laughs> that's few, right. few, few decades yeah. but that's alright. Silvana, you were talking a little bit about having a general practitioner and how important that is mm. on site. I know that Headspace Hawthorne is looking for a we GP. Are, can I Can I put in a little plug for Definitely. that. Definitely. Autonomy. It would yeah. be awesome. And, Absolutely. you know, what a lovely sell that is, knowing that it's one of the sites that is so focused on self-care and, yeah. and um, you know, avoiding burnout in mental health yeah. clinicians. Yeah. Silvana, thank you so much. We're out of time. Thank you for having me. It was our great pleasure. Thank you, Lolly Doc. Thank you, Dr. Malice. 
Uh, what an amazing segment and, and show we've had today with the focus on young people and mental health. Um, thank you again to Dr. Sarah Edelman uh, for coming on as a guest to talk about her new book, Good Thinking, and Sylvana Lettieri, who was manager of the Headspace in Hawthorne. Headspace.org.au yes. is the website. Also, I just feel the need to give the lifeline number. You know, we've been talking a lot about stuff that goes on for young people and mental health. The lifeline number is 131114 if you need. But, yeah, you can jump on the web to um, access Headspace as well, pick up the book Good Thinking, and we will be back next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.